Broadcasting from the Superbook Sports Studios, KTUS AM 1060, Tempe, Phoenix, and KSLX HD2, Scottsdale, Phoenix. It's time to hit the field with Extra Point, featuring Kayla Mortolaro and Bob Kemp on KDUS AM 1060. Tweet the show at KDUS AM 1060 or give us a call at 602-260-1060. The snap is back. The hold is down. You can't miss with this combination. And the Extra Point is good. AM 1060 online at kdos1060.com and with the kdos 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. It's Monday. It's April 3rd. And well, Bob, I saw it on my TV. I saw the green grass. I saw the azaleas. It's Masters Week. It's finally here. It's Monday at Augusta, getting us ready for Thursday's opening round. Plus, we have Monday Championship as we recap the final four. We have the Diamondbacks. We have the Suns. Plenty of topics and your calls as well. We'll take them today at 1030-602-260-1060 is the number. Sean Devaney of Heavy.com is set to join us to chat NBA around 1115. Uh, NBA, NBA PA has made some agreements for a new extension. Uh, In addition to that, we'll go around the world of the NBA as the regular season is coming to a close. But as we do, let's set the scene with today's poll questions and we'll pop on out to the KDOS1060.com poll question. Who do you have ATS on Monday night? SDSU plus 7.5, UConn minus 7.5. Numbers coming to you from the FanDuel Sportsbook app. And we now have UConn in the lead, 57% of the vote. SDSU trailing at 43 percent yeah this this number opened six and then immediately and i mean i mean immediately went to like eight on uh, saturday night and then it's been uh, balancing between there's still some eights out there worldwide and also a couple in the state of nevada there's actually a couple of sevens in the state of nevada as of like a half hour ago so there's a some a fluctuation there and uh yeah, if you have uh, you know, resources and for whatever way or for whatever reasons uh, to shop around, it seems like you can kind of get the number that you really want if you're looking around between seven, seven and a half or eight. And we'll toss it on over to Twitter at KDOS AM 1060, which is more accurate from Saturday. SDSU won, FAU lost. SDSU won 57.1% of the vote. FAU lost at 42.9%. We'll answer this question around 1130 today, but let's dive into this contest from Saturday where you have San Diego State beating Florida Atlantic University at the buzzer 72-71 on Saturday. It was Lamont Butler, who was the hero for SDSU, whose foot narrowly missed hitting the out-of-bounds line before turning back in for the pull-up jumper to send SDSU to the championship game. FAU made five threes at half, seven total for the game, with seven seven total, with 17.47 to play in the second half. Uh, John L. Davis, though, for Florida Atlantic, he struggled just eight points, two of nine from the floor. It was Elijah Martin who led the way with 26 points on seven of 13 including three of seven from three for san diego it was matt bradley he was the offense five of 12 four of eight from three 21 points darian trimmel struggled two of eight for five points yeah just throwing out just random stuff here obviously uh san diego state rallied from down 14 they were down 14 with 13 38 to go and i really didn't think that they had much of a chance to come back because they had 17 fouls in the first six minutes 
of the second half. Florida Atlantic did not take advantage of that. They settled for way too many jump shots, especially early in the shot clock when they had a huge lead, and that had a lot to do with them blowing the lead. Also, they were awful, you know, basically rebounding missed free throws for San Diego State. Uh, San Diego State had four offensive re- uh, rebounds just on missed free throws alone. And uh, uh, obviously the final possession, you know, you know, Brian Dutcher, I mean, they've been really good at calling timeouts and getting good shots and good looks for years. He elected not to call a timeout. Uh, no, it turned out to be the game-winning possession, and he didn't even have Bradley and uh, Trammell weren't even on the floor at the time, and he elected not to call the timeout, said he'd run out of plays, you know, kind of paraphrasing what he said, and end up, uh, yeah, Butler makes the game-winning shot, as you mentioned. I didn't even realize that he was that close to stepping out of bounds until, like, late Saturday night when I saw a replay from somebody at that point. But also, uh, you know, the San Diego State's defense uh, was not good in the first half. They allowed 40-plus points for just the, in any half for the third time this season. Uh, but Florida Atlantic, uh, I think a lot of it had to do with bad shot selection. I think they just kind of played like a bunch of young players who were maybe in, uh, not in over their heads, but, uh, you know, the, the moment I think got to them to some extent. They, they did some really dumb things in the second half of this game. Uh, still no team higher than a nine seed has ever won the NCAA tournament. In fact, no team is uh, higher than a nine seed. Is it, nine or higher has ever won a Final Four game. Uh, so uh, we'll see what happens here. But as you mentioned, you know, the Davis thing, they were undefeated when he was in the starting lineup this year until they, until they lost that game and uh, Butler made that shot. You mentioned rebounds. Uh, Florida Atlantic had 34 to SDSU's 35, so close in the margin there. But the difference was 8 to 12 offensive boards in favor of the Aztecs, who had those key offensive boards late in the game, as you mentioned, on those foul shots. Uh, you had talked about this when you had Kevin Flaherty of, of 24-7 Sports on with Brian Dutcher not calling a timeout, not having Matt Bradley on the floor, not having Trammell on the the floor you know we the pro it obviously worked out right he makes the the game winning shot butler makes the game winning shot but what are some of the pros and cons for calling a timeout versus letting the play play out you don't let your defense set you let the opposing defense set if you don't call a timeout but the fact that you know Tremel and uh, butler and uh, bradley were not on the floor I thought uh, you know they were going to call a timeout for sure, and also as I've mentioned, you know he's tremendous. They're really good. Uh, there, there's a lot of coaches that are really good at this. I think the ones I've talked about the most over the years are Izzo and Bill Self. You know, on dead ball situations or after timeouts, just getting amazingly good shots after in those situations uh, from the dead ball into the uh, you know whether it's a timeout or not. Uh, and, uh, you know, San Diego State's excellent at that, but uh, they didn't do any of that. Also, I was really surprised. I know that uh, Bill Raffrey mentioned this during the telecast, and I was in total agreement with him. I thought that they would foul and try to extend the game. Uh, I think they got kind of fortunate. You mentioned Davis. Uh, he definitely did some things that were not the best basketball IQ things, including uh, certainly he took the ball to the basket much earlier than he should have. In that last possession for Florida Atlantic, and uh, yeah, it gave uh, San Diego State more time on the clock. 
It's the second game this tournament that San Diego State has won with mere seconds remaining on the shot clock. Uh, transferring over to UConn and the Miami contest, UConn topped Miami 72-59. My guy, Sonogo, I get to keep saying his name for one more day, uh, was just too much. He was 9 of 11, 21 points, 10 rebounds. Jordan Hawkins, he was able to play 26 minutes. He, of course, was dealing with an illness this week. Uh, it was just 3 of 8 points, 4 of 5 from the foul line 13 points UConn though continued their incredible streak from behind the arc this tournament added nine more threes uh, and they uh, the out rebounding margin was 41 to 32 Omir didn't have his first points for Miami until 1806 to play in the second half I mean it was just kind of pretty obvious that UConn was the better team from start to finish yeah, even though the game was tied at 19, uh, but after that, uh, Connecticut ended the first half on an 18-5 run, and then they started the second half on a 9-2 run. Throw those together, that's 27-7. to That gave them a 46-26 lead. I think it would have get down to like six or eight points after that, but I don't think anybody, at least I didn't think at any point, that really uh, that Miami was uh, had a real chance to win the game, quite frankly. And, you know, the fact that Jackson was in foul trouble, he had two fouls in the first, you know, before the second television timeout. And Hawkins obviously was really on and off the floor because of illness. Uh, the fact that they were able to extend the lead with those two guys sitting. And really, I think that Klingon had a lot to do with that. You know, the seven foot two freshman, uh, I thought he was just tremendous in the first half at the defensive end of the floor. Also, they did a really good job, they being UConn, uh, defending the guards, uh, especially uh, Wong and Pack. They were both ineffective. Wong had 15 points, I know, but he only had 10 field goal attempts and only two assists. Pack had eight points. He was three out of 10 from the field, had just one assist in the game. And uh, those two guys need to do a whole lot more than uh, that to beat really anybody let alone beat a, a team as good as UConn in a national semifinal game. Yeah, I think you made a really excellent point about clinging, uh, coming in and just really shoring up the the interior there. He was a force to be reckoned with for, for UConn, and, and I guess that just that overall size was just a little bit too much. Yeah, and that's something we talked about before that you know, obviously – you have Miami with the one big, and UConn has, you know, if they want to go three bigs, they can. And they usually don't play all three of those guys simultaneously, but you know, at least a couple of them are out there almost always simultaneously. And so I think that that was a huge difference in this game. And you know, if Miami was going to have any chance, they needed Wong and Pack just to light it up, and needless to say, that did not happen at all. So it'll be UConn and it'll be SDSU in tonight's championship game, 6.20 p.m. on CBS. We'll step aside here, and when we come back, we'll preview tonight's championship game. But a couple of things to be of uh, keeping on your radar. With the baseball season here, the Diamondbacks are facing the Dodgers yet again, April 6th through 9th right here at Chase Field. It's the opening weekend series for the Diamondbacks, and it'll be a busy weekend with an opening day street festival on 
Thursday, April 6th. Post-game fireworks on Friday, April 7th. You can kick off the new season. Secure your tickets. dbacks.com backslash tickets. Two opportunities for you to win tickets to this April 6th Diamondbacks game against the Dodgers. Keep listening here. We'll have a pair of tickets to give away later on in today's show, or you can download the KDOS 1060 app, register, and follow along with the instructions to make you eligible to potentially win a couple of pairs of tickets to the Diamondbacks on April 6th. But more college hoops talk championship game on the other side of the break. It is the Extra Point. Bringing you the latest sports topics weekly right here on KDUS AM 1060 with me, the Doug Gottlieb Show, 1 to 3 p.m. Ten twenty here on KDUS AM 1060. It is the Extra Point. Bob Kemp, Kayla Mortolaro with you up until noon today as we typically do Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. The Final Four has paved the way to Monday's championship game tonight. San Diego State, UConn. San Diego State plus 7.5, UConn minus 7.5. Numbers coming to you from the FanDuel Sportsbook. 6.20 p.m. start on CBS. First, some tidbits before we get into this contest. UConn is 16-0 against non-Big East teams this season with an average margin of victory of 24.7 points with all of their wins coming by double digits in those 16 contests. UConn is the fifth team in the NCAA tournament history to win five games by 13 or more points. Four of the five that have previously done this have gone on to win the title. Uh, Michigan State in 2000, Duke in 2001, UNC in 2009, Villanova in 2018, and UNC did not win in 2016. So certainly some history here with just how dominant UConn has been so far in their road to this championship game. UConn is looking for its fifth NCAA title in its school history, 1999, 2004, 2011, and 2014. For some context, Duke has five, 1991, 1992, 2001, 2010, and 2015. UNC has six, if you count the 1957 title. Otherwise, uh, 1982, 1993, 2005, 2009, and 2017. Yeah, and three different coaches uh, for UConn during that stretch with Calhoun and obviously Kevin Ollie and and now Danny Hurley. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. I would think a couple things to pay attention to tonight. One, uh, the perimeter game of Connecticut. They've been throwing in threes, at a, you know, even for them, an alarming rate uh, on a consistent basis in this tournament. Meanwhile, San Diego State, they pretty much prevent three-point shots uh, in the uh, tournament so far, even including the 9 of 22 that were made by Florida Atlantic. Uh, teams against, uh, you know, shooting the three against San Diego State in the tournament are 28 of 106 so far. Also, uh, if it's a close game, San Diego State has four wins in this tournament, decided by seven points or fewer. Uh, last two games, they've won by a point apiece. And uh, Connecticut, in close games this season, are zero and four in games decided by four points or fewer. So we'll see how that goes. And San Diego State only has one loss since. Uh, February the 1st, so another feather in the cap, I guess, of San Diego State, uh, even though playing in the Mountain West Conference, and for that matter, in this tournament, not quite what they've uh, seen before they play Connecticut tonight. 
Yeah, some other, uh, you know, numbers to back up what you said there. In terms of what San Diego State was able to do against FAU, it held them to just 33% shooting in that second half. Uh, Also, San Diego State retrieves 74% of available rebounds on the defensive glass. They also force a 19.1% turnover rate. So certainly keeping with that defensive theme, hustle theme, UConn is shooting 49.5% from the floor and 40.3% from three. They Average 20 assists and 10 offensive boards per game this tournament. Uh, I also have a question here. Can anyone stop Sonogo? Well, I think what you, the best chance of stopping Sonogo is you got to pressure the guards. And certainly San Diego State, they love to do that. I mean, they put pressure on the perimeter, uh, whether it's uh, three-point shooting, as I mentioned, with those numbers, or whether it's just uh, – you know, basically making post passes. You know, they they they, they pressure the the passers. And uh, the other thing about San Diego State and really Connecticut to some extent, but San Diego State, uh, they are. Uh, you know, I'd say before the tournament even started, I mentioned this early in the tournament for both these teams that San Diego State and Houston, if there's a loose ball, they're going to get it. Uh, and that was definitely the case in the second half of that Florida Atlantic game. Uh, on Saturday, and you know, a lot of it had to do, I think, just the physical strength of San Diego State, and Florida Atlantic also, you know, really contributed to that uh, you know, San Diego State comeback with some really dumb, uh, you know, dumb. I don't like. I don't think there is a better term. Dumb three-point shooting early in the shot clock when they were had, you know, they had a double-digit lead, and the early in the shot clock, they're just jacking up shots. And some of those shots went in, in the first half. And as you mentioned, with that field goal percentage, needless to say, they didn't go down in the second half. But I think shot selection was a big reason why Florida Atlantic blew that lead. Uh, when we look at San Diego State here, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that this team is where they're at. If you go back to the 2019-2020 season, San Diego State was 30-2, and and they thought they had a, a real big opportunity to make some noise in the NCAA tournament. But that season, the NCAA tournament was canceled. And so now you have a couple of seasons later, some of those players are still there, uh, and now they're they're making their tournament run, making it to their first ever uh, Final Four and their first first ever championship game yeah there's only a couple guys that are contributors from that team uh, you know they're they're two big they're two studs on that team where you know both went on to whatever nba i think one guy's played in europe but that team actually quite frankly was better than the one uh, that is in the national championship game tonight and uh, obviously that team did got to get the opportunity they were going to be a one or two seed in the tournament had there been the tournament in 2020 when it comes to UConn, though, uh, you know, obviously Danny Hurley has made some uh, a significant impact on the Huskies here. But maybe, uh, by all accounts, this is kind of happening a year earlier because everyone's been talking about the recruiting class that's coming in for him uh, next year. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not quite subscribing to the year early thing. I mean, I think we watched him. If you watched him early in the season when they were. But 14, 15, and zero, and uh, I don't know if they ever got to number one in the country because we had a different number one team in the country in the human polls seemingly like every week there for a while. I don't know if they ever quite hit that. I think they were at least number two. So I don't think that if you watch that team, you know they had obviously the losing streak uh, when for whatever reason uh, during the regular season. But uh, as you mentioned also previously, they haven't lost a game outside the Big East all season long.
Are you surprised, though, that they ended up being a four seed? Is that potentially maybe a miss seed for them and, and how the path that they've been able to take to get to this point? I wasn't that surprised when it happened. I mean, because they did lose, you know, the seven, what, you know, count the conference tournament, they lost like seven games, right? Uh, and they, again, uh, you know, they, they've lost in the conference tournament. In fact, they did not win the Big East Conference tournament. They were blowing into this tournament. Uh, you know, just on a, a complete high, even though they certainly played better in the last couple of weeks of the regular season leading into the Big East Conference Tournament. But, no, nah, I'm not – I don't get too – in fact, I don't care about the seedings uh, when, before they happen. You know, I look at them and, you know, you see when the, when the selections are made or when they're revealed, I should say, on uh, that selection Sunday, you know, there's certainly some things that you know, kind of raise your eyebrow and you kind of go, whoa, really? They're – that low or high of a seed, but uh, I don't remember really having any reaction to Connecticut being a four. It seemed like it was about right. If uh, Danny Hurley and UConn are able to go on and get a victory, obviously this would be another notch in the uh, Hurley legacy and all that they've been able to accomplish in high school and college basketball. There's been a lot of really interesting articles uh, in regards to Hurley and also him kind of taking time away from his playing career and how he got into coaching in the first place and then just his journey and kind of almost feeling like he's always been in the shadow of, of Bobby Hurley because of his success that he he had as a player at Duke uh, kind of fascinating to be able to get that perspective and that side of it but it's been really neat to be able to see the family support it for Danny in the UConn basketball run yeah absolutely I mean uh, between his father legendary high school coach hall of fame high school coach etc uh, I think he's in the basketball hall of fame Bob Hurley senior uh, so yeah no doubt uh and uh, the fact that what was it like, you know, six, seven years ago, he's a high school coach. So uh, it's been uh, interesting uh, ascension for uh, for Danny Hurley, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens tonight. I would be quite frankly surprised if they lost tonight. Uh, so we'll see how this goes. To answer your question, basketball Hall of Fame inductee in 2010 for Bob Hurley Sr. Oh wow, way back when. Okay. I'm the wrong guy to ask about Hall of Fames or talk about Hall of Fames because I really don't pay much attention to them. But, uh, you know, certainly I'm not arguing the fact that, you know, I'm not surprised. I figured he was in, but I didn't know for sure. When it comes to another kind of end of an era, if you will, this will be Jim Nance's final. Uh, it was his final Final Four on Saturday, and now it's his final championship game that he is calling. But he's going to have just a really fun week because it heads right into Augusta for him. But it'll be the end of quite an extensive run and then paving the way for Iron Eagle to take over uh, calling this championship game. So you're going from one great to another great. Yeah, I'm not as crazy about Nance as a basketball announcer as many people. I think he does a good job. I think he's a better football announcer. You probably can judge much more than I can on golf, considering I don't watch golf. Uh, but uh, I think he's been an okay college basketball announcer. I certainly think that Dick Enberg was better uh, doing the college basketball in the NCAA tournament uh, way back in the 60s, excuse me, the 70s, and actually did some in the 60s too because he did some of the, he was actually, Enberg was actually the UCLA guy uh, you know, when UCLA was winning the championships on an annual basis in the 60s and early 70s. 
Uh, that was part of his gig. He did you know, Los Angeles Angels baseball, the Rams football, and also UCLA basketball. Not a bad gig for him. Uh, and uh, yeah, he went pretty uh, he went pretty far with that. Uh, but uh, you know, I actually think that uh, you know Busberger and uh, Enberg and uh, you know and actually I like Iron Eagle doing games better than I do Nance. But I'm not I don't dislike Nance. But I just uh, I understand the nostalgia thing, and I'm sure that would have been even more of a nostalgia thing had Houston actually you know, where he went to school uh, made it to the Final Four in Houston. Yeah, Houston messed that one up, didn't they? Uh, well, really only for Nance. For the rest of us, you know, we were able to watch some incredible upset games and a lot of fun. And uh, so really just for him personally that it messed it up for him, but that's okay. The rest of us can enjoy UConn and SDSU tonight, 6.20 p.m. I, on cer- I certainly enjoyed SDU- SDSU with the points when they played against you know, Alabama earlier. So that was good. So that's I've had a little a little financial benefit from San Diego State making it this far. 602-260-1060. That's the number if you'd like to join the program. We'll take your calls now, get to you on the other side of the break. 602-260-1060. We'll also dive into some Diamondbacks as they split the series with the Dodgers 2-2. Some other baseball as well as opening weekend is in the books for the 2023 season. But 602-260-1060 is the number if you'd like to join the program. It is the Extra Point. Hey, Phoenix, Doug Gottlieb here. I'm bringing the best sports talk weekdays to you, 1 to 3 p.m., right here on KDUS AM 1060. Welcome back to Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060, KDOS1060.com, and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. 602-260-1060 is the number if you'd like to join the program. We'll take your calls in this segment. For now, let's talk a little bit about the Arizona Diamondbacks. They split the series with the Dodgers 2-2, four games set in L.A. to get the season started. Madison Bumgarner starts Saturday, four innings pitched, five runs, five hits, four walks, two strikeouts, 85 pitches, but it included that grand slam in the first, and he has since been sent back to Arizona to be evaluated by the medical team after complaining of arm fatigue. Tori Lovello had said that Bumgarner... Quote, feels strongly he won't miss a start. So we'll have to see and monitor this particular situation. But uh, yet again, not a good start for Madison Bumgarner to the season. It's a long haul ahead. But overall, the first thing I thought of was you, Bob, and how kudos is due where kudos is due. And you were against this move in the first place to bring him in years ago. And it's not looking like it worked out very well. I was against this move uh, for two reasons. One, I just didn't think he had a whole lot left. And secondly, they paid him $85 million, which is why I think it's without question the worst uh, signing in the history of this organization, franchise history. I know there's the Russ Ortiz thing, but they didn't pay him $85 million. Uh, So basically, it's unfortunately been just – Kind of a you know, a waste of a lot of things. Uh, you know, he hasn't been you know anywhere near what he used to be, which I think should have been expected. Even in his last year or so in San Francisco, he was tremendous in games in San Francisco, one of the ultimate hitters' ballparks. 
And remember, this that's before the humidor was you know, put into Chase Field and made things a little more equitable for the hitters and the pitchers. Uh, but it just uh, it it just hasn't worked out. And you know, I think you could also make a case that the Diamondbacks would have been better off in these last you know four plus seasons now to give somebody else the opportunity to see uh, what they can do in that spot because it hasn't been. You know, you, when Bumgarner's pitching in that particular day, it's not like you're thinking, okay, this is a, his guy is going to slam the door like he used to when he was in San Francisco. And, you know, they were a, basically a two-to-one underdog in the game that he started on Saturday night against Kershaw. And, you know, that's a game that you know, Kershaw against a Bumgarner and their Dodger and Giants heyday. Uh, that game would have been, you know, probably like, a, you know, maybe a buck and a half as opposed to, you know, a ridiculous uh, two-to-one situation and just give you an idea of, you know, how the uh, how the odds maker thinks that the Diamondbacks don't have much of a chance when Bumgarner's on the mound. And to your point as well, in those days, it would have been appointment viewing. Uh, unfortunately, the Diamondbacks were in a huge hole to get things started. So let's table that for now and focus on the rest of the series here, and specifically yesterday's game. It was a 2-1 to one win, and the squad really showed off its speed, the ability to put pressure on Gratterall with stolen bases, bunts, uh, just really kind of the maybe uh, – the usage of the young guys and the overall capability of this particular team. Well, they get seven runs in four games and a win two of those. That's pretty amazing. Uh, I think yesterday was more of a Will Smith problem than it was Gratterall or whoever was pitching for the Dodgers at the time. Uh, he had a major problem behind the plate, uh, you know, basically transferring from, you know, basically glove hand to throwing hand. And uh, Corbin Carr obviously took advantage of that a couple of times, stealing second and third. And uh, I think that was, uh, you know, know, Austin Barnes is the guy that catches Clayton Kershaw almost every start because the ASU alum, Austin Barnes, is a tremendous receiver uh, and uh, pitch caller and so forth. And uh, I don't think the Dodgers have the option to really do that as much this year because they have, uh, you know, J.D. Martinez is there as – pretty much the full-time DH, and they're not going to put him in the outfield, I can't imagine, more than occasionally unless they absolutely positively have to. So I think the Dodgers uh, you know, have a few questions. Uh, you know, it's you know the old short sample size, you know, four games in four days. So we'll see how that goes. But, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, he's uh, – that, that's an issue. Behind the plate defensively is an issue if Barnes is not the catcher. You mentioned four games. It's a small sample size, but through four games for the Diamondbacks, Christian Walker and Kyle Lewis each have one home run. They also lead with two RBIs for the team. Christian Walker is the leader with six hits. Guriel four hits. Corbin Carroll, three hits and three stolen bases. What have you seen from Corbin Carroll? It's not his debut, but he's starting the season, has the new contract, is expected to be a really key cornerstone piece for this Diamondbacks roster what have you seen through the first four games with him not a lot quite frankly um nothing more than we already knew he's really fast he can certainly play the outfield and you know when they have the three speedsters in the outfield that's a really a tremendous group and I think that's a big deal as far as at least in games in the uh, National League West of which there's not as many this year but there's a lot of ground to cover and ballparks in this division 
uh, no matter where you're at. You know, obviously, in Colorado, it's enormous. Uh, so I think that, that would even help them even more in those games. But you know, Dodger Stadium is not the smallest ballpark in the world. And then Chase Field, obviously, you've got some uh, funky angles and th- so forth and the overhang in center field, which a lot of uh, you know, gold glove center fielders have come in here on opposing teams and had a lot of problems playing center field there. I think their outfield defense is definitely good for the uh, yeah, 19 division games times the four opponents they're playing this year. Uh, so uh, we'll see how that goes. But, uh, you know, I'm not surprised. I just don't – I didn't really like their lineup too much before the season started. And quite frankly, I haven't seen anything through four games that's changed my mind on that. I think they can catch it. I think the big thing is, you know, can their bullpen, uh, which has you know, been a kind of a running issue here for several years now, can they consistently get the last six outs of the game? And that's something they've been especially horrendous at the last two years. Well, the sheriff is back, Andrew Chafin. Yeah, but I don't know if you want him closing. I know he had he did he did on Saturday night. I get my days mixed up here. Uh, one of those nights he closed. Uh, so Friday night, I guess. But uh, you know, it was uh, you know it's. Uh, I think you want him pitching to left-handed hitters most of the time. I don't think they signed him to be getting the last three outs of a game very often. Tonight, the Diamondbacks stay on the road in California facing the San Diego Padres. Ryan Nelson up against Ryan Weathers, 6.40 p.m. on Bally Sports Arizona. Interesting here what's going on with the NL West. The Padres 2-2, two and two, the Dodgers 2-2, two and two, the Diamondbacks 2-2, two and two, the Rockies 2-2, two and two, and the Giants 1-2. So they'll be in a two-game set tonight. Uh, two-game set starting tonight, Ryan Nelson and Ryan Weathers. Yeah, um, uh, you know, don't make too much of the first four games of the season. In fact, I'm a little disappointed. I don't have more real opinions of uh, you know too many teams at the start of uh, the season, other than the fact that a couple of teams look like they did. They actually have spring training. Uh, that would be the Phillies and the in uh, the Miami Marlins. Look like uh, what the hell they've been doing for the last month. They look like that they uh, were unprepared to play, especially defensively. And, uh, you know, the, the, as far as the Marlins are concerned, the Jazz Chisholm thing in center field is just a complete disaster. Well, to that point in that division, the Mets are 3-1, and one, the Braves are 2-1, and one, the Nationals 1-2, and two, the Marlins 1-3, and three, and the Phillies 0-3. Oh uh, some other divisions here, the Rays start off to a 3-0 and oh start, Yankees 2-1, and one, Red Sox 2-1. and one. Maybe that surprised a few people, but again, it's a really small sample size. Blue Jays 1-2, and two, Orioles 1-2. and two. Uh, The Twins 3-0, and oh, the Guardians 3-1, and one, the White Sox 2-2, two and two, the Royals 0-3, oh and, and they were actually shut out twice. The Tigers 0-3, and they scored three runs all game, all series long. So not good hitting displays there from the Royals and the Tigers. They're really bad, uh, both those teams. And unfortunately, as has been the case with baseball the last few years, there are some horrendously bad teams. Uh, I know that's kind of redundant, but I mean, I can't stress it enough. There are some really, really bad teams in Major League Baseball, and I don't think small sample size or not, I'd be shocked if that's going to change. I think the two things that kind of get my attention the most here, you mentioned uh, you know, the fact that the uh, Guardians are 3-1. and one. They, went, you know, they won three out of four games uh, in Seattle, so I think that that's actually noteworthy. I think those are two really good teams. And also, you know, I watched pretty much every pitch of the Baltimore and Boston series don't be fooled, folks. Those two teams suck. 
Uh, yeah, they were. They, they, maybe they'll change. Maybe it is a small sample size. But just the level of play and the defensive play on both teams was atrocious in that series. Rounding out the divisions here, Rangers 3-0, and Angels 2-1, and Astros 2-2, two and two, the A's 1-2, and two, and the aforementioned Mariners 1-3, Cardinals 2-1, and one, Reds 2-1, and one, Brewers 2-1, and one, Pirates 1-2, and, and Cubs 1-2. and two. Now, something that I would just want to personally pay attention to this season because there has been so much made about it in spring training in addition to uh, just kind of the overall, um, you know, are we going to see it more often? And I'm talking about stolen bases. And how is that going to impact the game? How is that going to impact, uh, you know, putting pressure on pitchers in certain situations to be able to get runners over in scoring position? So some stats from opening weekend, you had the Orioles actually leading the league with 10 stolen bases, the Astros with six stolen bases, the White Sox, Guardians and Yankees all at five stolen bases and the Diamondbacks right there at uh, four stolen bases. So that's just something that I personally want to pay attention to as the season rolls on and just see how the larger base size impacts the way the game uh, gets played. That's true. Also, I'm going to continue to say this for at least a month. I mean, the new rules and so forth, are they going to enforce these all season long or are they going to forget about them like they do in other sports after, you know, kind of a point of emphasis thing and so forth. So we'll see if that happens. You know, the Orioles, you know, they were 10 out of 10 stolen bases, five out of five in each of the first two games against Boston. And, you know, a lot of that was the fact that, uh, you know, they actually had a, you know, pitchers did a horrible job of holding runners on base, but, you know, they had some opportunities to throw guys out and, they, you know, they just made the catchers, you know, catcher made some really bad throws and so forth. Uh, I think that the Red Sox, uh, I think they missed Christian Vasquez at the end of the season last year after they traded him at the deadline to, uh, to uh, Houston, and uh, certainly I'm guessing there's some Red Sox fans that kind of wish that they still had him this year because there certainly would have been at least, uh, at least I wouldn't say a half of those stolen bases, but at least a third of those stolen bases would have been you know, you know, caught stealings had there been better throws from, the, from behind the plate. Baseball season is here. The Diamondbacks come home for the first time April 6th through 9th for their opening weekend series, and it'll be a busy weekend for the Diamondbacks. Opening day street festival on Thursday, April 6th. Post-game fireworks on Friday, April 7th. Kick off the new season and secure tickets over at dbacks.com slash tickets. But you can be a winner of a pair of tickets to April 6th game against the Dodgers if you're caller number three right now, 602-260-1060. Caller three, 602-260-1060 for a pair of tickets to the Diamondbacks Thursday, April 6th contest against the Dodgers from Chase Field. If you aren't a winner, of course, dbacks.com slash tickets or there's still opportunity as well to download the KDOS 1060 app, register and follow along with the instructions to get yourself eligible to win a pair of tickets that way as well 602-260-1060 caller three we wrap up our number one next kdus am 1060 is the home to the dan patrick show the doug gottlieb show and sports map radio catch all the sports content here on am 1060 
Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060, online at KDOS1060.com, and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. Congratulations to our winner of the Diamondbacks tickets for Thursday, April 6th. You can keep listening here. We'll have some more tickets available uh, in tomorrow's show as well as Wednesday's show, or you can download the KDOS 1060 app, register to win, and follow along with the instructions to be eligible for a couple of pairs of tickets that way. Once again, the Diamondbacks are opening up the home portion of their season April 6th through 9th and the, the Thursday game against the Dodgers post-game fireworks on Friday, April 7th. And for more information and tickets, dbacks.com slash tickets. All right. Uh, there was another basketball championship game this weekend that was uh, full of intrigue, full of fun, full of great basketball being played as well. And that was the women's uh, final four. You had the championship game yesterday afternoon with LSU beating Iowa 102 to 85 uh, to get to that championship game. You had LSU beating Virginia Tech 79-72 and then Iowa slaying the dragon that was South Carolina 77-73. I have never seen a game plan like the one that Iowa had over South Carolina, which was to crowd the paint, leave perimeter shooters wide open and South Carolina couldn't hit because the size differential was astronomical. This was the only chance Iowa had, including Caitlin Clark going absolutely nuts yet again with 41 points, eight to six, six rebounds. It's truly remarkable how she can just pull up from anywhere. Her range is impressive. She also has great facilitating abilities. The ball's in her hands a lot. Uh, it's it, it was really impressive how Iowa was able to have all the things, all the pieces come together to topple South Carolina, which hadn't lost a game in in 42 attempts. But LSU, when it came to the championship game, first of all, the referees made themselves a little bit too much of the story. Uh, you put key players in foul trouble for things that weren't really fouls. Uh, I also think this rule has to get changed. A technical foul is also a personal foul. That's craziness. Um so you had some some foul trouble for some key players for Iowa. They don't have a lot of depth. LSU did have a lot of depth. And so when it came down to it, though, LSU was knocking down those threes that South Carolina wasn't. LSU hit nine threes in the first uh, half of play. It was just an incredible display of shooting from LSU. And like I said, even though they were in some foul trouble with Angel Reese, they had depth to be able to overcome it. And the best player on the court was Alexis Morris for LSU. She was 8 of 14, 21 points, 9 assists. Her mid-range game was spot on. Caitlin Clark, 30 points, 8 assists. She found herself in some foul trouble as well. And then Iowa, their two starters, and uh, Monica uh, Shinozo, she was a really important post player for Iowa and had a great connection to be able to run some pick and rolls and things with Caitlin Clark as well as her ability to finish around the rim. She fouled out of the game and that really, uh, her foul trouble certainly hindered Iowa being able to uh, really be able to compete to the ultimate level with LSU. But in general, this was an incredible tournament for women's basketball and the college game. 4.5 million viewers watched the Final Four. 3.4 million watched LSU versus Virginia Tech. 
5.5 million watched Iowa versus South Carolina. With this win for LSU, it is their first NCAA Women's National Championship title on the hardwood. For their head coach, though, Kim Mulkey, she is now a four-time NCAA champion and the first to do it with two different schools as she was previously with Baylor and now here with LSU. I mentioned it at the top of the show. Hello, it's Masters Week. Um, I, I'm actually watching it right now on the television screen. The green grass looks wonderful. It looks a little, maybe a little chilly. I see guys wearing some, some jackets, but we'll see how the weather shapes up for the rest of the week. You do have Larry Mize, because that's the thing about the Masters, right, is that you have a lifetime invitation to come back and play as a previous Masters winner. Larry Mize winning in historic fashion years ago. He is teeing it up for his 40th and final Masters. Masters this week. Brooks Kepka enters this week, winning last week in Orlando on the Live Tour. Live golfers will have 18 players in the field this week. Corey Connors, he won the Valero Texas Open, and uh, he, he has an incredible history and an incredible story with the Valero Texas Open. He now has two uh, two career. PGA Tour wins, and they both have come at the Valero Texas Open. He first won it in 2019 when he Monday qualified for the event, which then propelled him into the Masters because he was not previously eligible. Corey Connors is a repeat champion in the year of 2023 at the Valero Texas Open. We hit, though, on Matt Kuchar and Robbie Shelton with their finishing positions. So let's see if we can keep that momentum going into the awesome Masters week ahead that we have. Of course, Rory McIlroy, Scotty Scheffler remain at the top of the board. I'm actually seeing John Rahm drop a little bit. He had gone as as low as uh, plus 750. I saw this morning on the FanDuel Sportsbook app, he's plus 900. So interesting there, jockeying for position. And uh, I believe we will be able to catch up with Alex Myers, who's been on for all the majors with us for the last couple of years. Expected to have him on Wednesday's show, so looking forward to that. Hour number two of Extra Point is coming up on the other side of the break. It is the Extra Point. (laughs) 